for the remainder of the week. Uh, just a few days ago, um, many of you have probably not heard yet, but Jerry and Betsy Weaver uh, lost their daughter. She went to be with the Lord just a few days ago, and Judy had uh, battled cancer for many years and uh, had many, many uh, physical um, struggles um, that she'd, she'd battled. But she's at home with the Lord now, and that is the, the peace of the Weavers, and it's our peace as well. And so I would urge you to be praying for Jerry and Betsy and for the whole family. To add to that, and I did not get permission, uh, and I hope it's okay, Betsy, but the, the doctors also a few days ago discovered a slow-growing cancer uh, that Betsy uh, has. And so please pray for Betsy, uh, for wisdom for the doctors, that they would know how to approach uh, this cancer. And we would pray for complete healing uh, for Betsy. I want to have a special word of prayer or for the weavers now. Father in heaven, uh, we do pray for, for Jerry and for Betsy and their whole family as they are grieving the loss of their daughter. God, we thank you that she enjoyed a hope in Christ and enjoys a hope in Christ, both past ten- tense, present tense, and future tense. Thank you for uh, the gospel that thrills our souls. We have been singing about that gospel and the peace that it brings today. But there is still uh, grief. There is still sadness and a time of mourning. And so I ask that uh, the peace of your Holy Spirit would surround our our friends now. We pray also uh, in the days ahead that you would strengthen uh, Betsy in particular. we pray for the doctors. They would give you would give them great wisdom to know how to approach uh, this new discovery. And we commit her into your care, God. We know that both Jerry and Betsy have a great love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they believe in the power of the gospel. And so we commit all these things into your hands. We uh, also want to pray today, God, uh, for uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of family members who are reeling right now as a result of the the tragic shooting in Orlando. Uh, God, I pray that uh, despite uh, this horrible event, that you would somehow use this as an occasion for the gospel to reign in the hearts of many people. God, you know the circumstances, you know all the things that have happened, and uh, we commit this uh, into your sovereign uh, watch care as well. And then, Lord, we know that there are many in our church family who are wrestling or struggling. There are some things that may not even have come to the surface yet uh, that is is yet unaware. We pray that you uh, would reign in each life. We pray that the peace of your Holy Spirit would bring uh, deep and lasting comfort. Indeed, that is the topic of the message today. We pray that uh, we would be comforted as the people of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me once again to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. The Bible paints a very vivid picture of the disciples and their absolute devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Gospel of Luke doesn't waste any time in describing the devotion of these faithful men. Here's how Luke chapter 5 verse 11 describes it. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything And followed him. Imagine that. They left everything to follow 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only did they leave everything, they no doubt heard the the mocking and the jeers from family members and friends as they resolved in their hearts to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 14, as you know, we are only hours away from the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus moves closer to the cross, the decision to follow Jesus, I believe, continues to intensify. I want to have you to come with me into the troubled world of these men who the Scripture calls the disciples of Christ. First, they had experienced the the defection of their friend Judas Iscariot. Then there was the, the denial of Peter. Then there is the departure of Jesus. He says over and over again, and we'll see him refer to it again in John 14 today, that he is about to leave. He is about to depart. His departure is imminent. And so you can imagine with the the defection, the apostasy of Judas Iscariot, the imminent uh, denial of Peter, as we move closer to the cross, and the imminent departure of Jesus, that these disciples, while they loved Jesus, while they were devoted to Jesus, while they desired to serve Him and please Him, their hearts were filled with anxiety. Their hearts were filled with fear. And you may even embrace this notion that at times their hearts were filled with doubt. Now, as we consider the doubt and the fear and the the anxiety and the troubled world of the disciples, that should not come as a real shock to us today because the world that they lived in, the world that they experienced is our world today. I think I was away. It was was very early when I, I woke up and I looked at my phone and saw the news flash from Orlando. At that time, 20 were dead. Later, as I got out of the shower and looked at my phone again, the number was up to 50. 50 people who were brutally executed in this nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Indeed, we find ourselves living in not only a a dangerous world, but we live in a troubled world. Now, the troubled world that we find ourselves living in is is beautifully described by Ed Welch in his book entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And what Dr. Welch does is he describes the, the essence of the fear that you and I experience, some of us, on a daily basis. And, and he describes it in a way that may be new to you, but here's how he does it. He says, the first thing that people wrestle with is this, people will see me. People will see me. Let me explain. They will learn, these people who will see me, one day they will learn about the real me. And when they learn about the real me, when they learn about the real you, we will be exposed. We will be humiliated. You see, ever since Adam committed that grievous sin in the garden, we have been in a habit of hiding our true selves from one another and hiding our true selves from God. Ed Welch says it like this. From Genesis on, 
Nakedness or the shame of being exposed to others became one of the great curses in Hebrew culture. It was a profound curse because it symbolized the deeper spiritual nakedness and shame that needed covering. It symbolized that apart from God's covering, we stand naked before him. And so the first thing we wrestle with is this idea that people will see me. They will learn about the real me. They'll learn about my fears. They'll learn about my desires. They'll learn about my longings. And they won't like what they see. Does this make sense to you this morning? A second thing we wrestle with, Ed Welch says, is that people will reject me. They will reject me. And the fear of rejection causes us to shrink back. It causes us to become timid. The fear of rejection prevents us from becoming the kinds of people that God calls us to be. And then one that is especially relevant in light of what has happened in Orlando a few hours ago is this fear. People will physically hurt me. They will steal from me. They will steal my ideas. They will steal my possessions. They will abuse me, be it emotionally or sexually. They will use their mouths to hurt me. And while we're told as children that sticks and stones will never break my bones, but names will never hurt me, we all know that's the biggest joke we've ever heard of, right? You see, when someone says something about us, it hurts. I have a a dear friend who was recently accused of being a heretic. Nothing can be further from the truth. It's not true, but when you're charged with heresy and you're a, a, a faithful Christ follower, that hurts. It hurts. And so we know that people will see us, reject us. They will threaten to physically hurt us. And as a result of that, we live our lives in isolation. We live our lives in fear and we tend to let circumstances dictate our hopes and our dreams. Therefore, we refuse to take risks. Instead of moving forward in courage, we do the opposite. We cower in fear. We struggle with anxiety and fear and worry. Our timidity rules in our hearts and it prevents us from living lives of of boldness and decisiveness and courage. We fear the circumstances. We fear the world. We fear the response of other people. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ was very aware of the, the fear and the anxiety and the doubt that troubled the hearts of his disciples. And he understands our situation as well. He understands the things that that you and I face on a daily basis, things that cause our hearts to grow increasingly troubled. What did Jesus give the disciples and all subsequent believers in order to live lives of boldness and courage? Well, last week, we began to address that question. We learned that Jesus left his people with a great promise. Jesus left all all of his people, with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now this morning, I want to take it a step further. And I want to invite you to join me as we survey the landscape of the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ offers. In John chapter 14, Jesus 
brilliantly articulates the peace that he provides for his people. I want to have you stand with me and as we read from God's authoritative, inerrant, infallible word. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. Jesus tells his disciples and all of his followers, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is God's word. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, the title of the message this morning is Shalom. Shalom, finding peace in perilous times. And for our purposes this morning and the time that is allotted to me, I want to have you focus with me most especially on verse 27. And as we move forward, I would have you to notice the two headings that will help us to find peace in the perilous times that we live in. By way of preview and introduction, we will first look at a gift of hope. A gift of hope. And then we'll conclude our thoughts with what I've entitled, A Great Command. But first of all, look with me at a gift of hope. And review once again with me in verse 27. Jesus, upon telling the disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit, says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives Do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I want to take a few minutes this morning to describe this gift of hope. The gift of hope, and the gift of hope is none other than peace. It's the gift of peace. Now, the Greek word here for for peace is a word that means harmony. Jesus is offering this gift, what I've called a gift of hope. He offers harmony. But I want to direct your attention all the way back to the pages of the Old Testament. I want you to turn your attention from Greek culture for a minute to Hebrew culture, because the Hebrew word that many of you are well aware of is the word shalom. If you have a friendship with a a Hebrew person and you get ready to say your goodbyes, As a good American, you're going to say something like, see you later, dude, right? We're so intelligent. What the Hebrew person is going to say is, shalom, shalom. What does that mean? It's the Hebrew word for peace. It's the counterpart of what we see promised here in verse 27. Now, the word shalom means completeness. It means soundness. It means it really has an implication of safety and security and health and well-being. Let me ask you, is that something that you long for today? 
safety and security and peace and well-being. The word points to the experience of living a, a quiet life, a life of tranquility, a life of contentment. And Jesus says something interesting here in verse 27. He, he emphasizes the gift of hope by actually repeating himself to his disciples. You see him do this throughout the Gospels. He will say, for instance, truly, truly. And whenever Jesus says truly, truly, you know, it's time to listen up. It means what's going to come next is very important. And so here he emphasizes this gift of hope by, by repeating himself to his disciples. Look again at verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. That word leave means I'm about to depart. He said it over and over again for the last several weeks. We've looked at that. He's about to depart. Now he says, peace, I leave with you. It means I'm going to leave the peace behind with you. But then he articulates it once again. He says it in a different way. He says, my peace, I give to you. The word give in the Greek means this, to appoint. To ordain. So it's not like he just, he just offers it in his hand. He says, I ordain. I grant you the gift of peace. Now, the New Testament clearly describes what we're calling the gift of hope that the Lord Jesus Christ promises to leave his disciples. Look at a few examples with me. First of all, in Luke chapter 2, the angels announced this gift of hope with the coming of Jesus. You remember it well. We read this verse every Christmas. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace among those whom he is pleased. In Acts chapter 9, we see the church modeling this gift of hope. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up. In Acts chapter 10, the church preached a message that literally exploded with this gift of hope. Acts 10 says, As the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And then the kingdom of God is a great example of this gift of hope. In Romans 14, 17, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself, are those things that characterize my life? Is my life one that is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy? Some of you might be here. You say, righteousness, yes. Peace, yes. Joy, that's another matter. John Piper has said over and over again, over the last 25 or 30 years, he's called it the fight for joy. And I'm convinced he's right, is that many of us, myself included, have what you might refer to as the fight for joy. We need to fight for it. It's the Christian life as a life of of righteousness, peace, and joy, but it doesn't come through the back door. It's something we fight for. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Spirit, you may abound in hope. 
we know that in Galatians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle sets forth what, we, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is the fruit of peace. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Do you see this relationship between joy and peace? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And so peace is, peace is manifested in our lives as Christians. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Let me break into the verse. Is that something you're looking for? Is that something you're in need of? That is the peace of Almighty God. Once again, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the word guard means there? If you're a baseball fan, you're going to love this. If you're not a baseball fan, you're going to love it anyway. The word means to umpire. To guard means to umpire. Now, read it again and and get, get into the moment with me, if you will. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard... Do you see him? Behind the plate? Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What do we know about the umpire? The umpire calls balls. The umpire calls strikes. The umpire is overseeing the game. He's in control of the game. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gift of hope belongs not only to the disciples in the first century. This gift of hope belongs to everyone who is in Christ. Over the last several weeks, I have read some books and I've heard some messages and It's becoming more and more popular to speak in general terms, to say that we have all been given the peace of God. That is not true, is it? Is the peace of God that is mediated through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is given to whom? It's given to the elect. It's given to the people of God. It's given to the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have a friend or a family member who's not experiencing peace, you know the reason why that is. They have not been given peace. They have not been granted peace that Jesus promised his disciples. What is your job? What is your role? You tell your unsaved family member or friend how they can have peace. That's one of my important roles this morning. To tell you that if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have peace. You are living a life of hell on earth. That's the honest truth. But the word of God says this, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, know this. You can walk out of church today knowing that you have peace with God. Well, Pastor, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? How much do I have to give? How much do I have to serve? Those are the wrong questions. The answer that is provided in the New Testament is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Salvation is free. We receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the gift 
of hope. This is the gift of of shalom, of peace, a description of the good gift that God promises his people. Now, I want to provide you now with a disclaimer. You always have to love it when a pastor says, but... Or however, this is the but or however, this is the disclaimer. I want you to see in verse 27 that the peace that Christ gives us is utterly set apart and distinct. He says in verse 27, not as the world gives you, do I give to you. I want you to pay close attention to the word world. The word world comes from the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. And cosmos, or the world, represents not the the physical earth that we live on. Rather, it represents the worldly ideology. The worldly philosophy, if you will. And the world, you see, offers every day on the internet, in magazines, in the university system, in the business world. It offers us, you ready for this? What's this? In quotes, it offers us peace. The world understands what it means to endure tribulation. The world understands as much as we Christians understand that we live in a troubled age, that there is an inner ache in the soul of every person. And so what does the world do? The world is a master marketing machine, right? And so the world uses the the master marketing mechanism to offer you and I, quote-unquote, peace. It offers a, quote-unquote, peace solution at our moment of need. But in the final analysis, what do we know about the peace that the world offers? It's what I would like to call pseudo-peace. It's false peace. It's fake peace. It is a sham. You see, the world offers peace for a price. That is to say, the world is quick to offer this temporary peace and a pseudo-peace that ultimately doesn't even satisfy the desires of our hearts, but they'll do it for a price. They'll do it for a price. The world tells us that peace is found in materialism. Have you heard that? Buy a lot of stuff and you'll feel better. Have you ever battled depression or loneliness or just, you say, Pastor, I don't want to call it depression. That's a big word. But do you ever get the blues? Do you ever get bummed out and you say, I have the solution. I will go to the mall. And I will go to the mall and I will max out my credit card and I will feel better for about two days. The world tells us that you can find peace via materialism. The world tells us that you will find peace in the ideal relationship. Women, you getting tired of your husband? Well, find another husband. He is the perfect guy. There's the perfect, the ideal relationship. Or the world tells you this. Peace is found in education. You get your bachelor's degree. You get your master's degree. You get your doctorate. You get your Ph.D. And then you get another Ph.D. And by this time, you're in your mid-40s and you have more degrees than Fahrenheit. And what do you experience? Not peace. Just a lot of bills from your education. The world tells us that peace is found in proficiency. You be the best mathematician you can be. 
You'd be the best scientist you can be. You'd be the best physician you can be. You'd be the best teacher in the district. You'd be the best, you fill in the blank, and you will know peace. The world tells us this, that peace is found in in having sexual intimacy outside the castle walls of marriage. Is that a big one in our culture? Something that wasn't big when I was in high school, but is huge now, I still can't believe it, is the sin of homosexuality. Shall I say it again? The sin of homosexuality. The world tells us this, that you will find peace in the sin of homosexuality. The problem is they don't tell us it's a sin. So we have what's known as the LBGT lesbian, bisexual, transgender, gay. I've been told there's a Q at the end now. I can't keep up with it. Queer, right? Let me say, to be very clear, these are people we as Christ followers are called to love. So do not let dogmatism from the pulpit, do not let strong opinions from the pulpit Coerce you into thinking that we don't love these people. No, we love these people. We embrace these people. We love them with the love of Jesus. But we know this, that the L and the B and the G and the T and the Q, none of those letters bring peace. None of those letters bring peace. All they bring is the wrath of God. The world tells us this. You can find peace in doing your own thing. I like to call it autonomy, being a law unto yourself, whether it's sexually, whether it's morally, whether it's in business, whether it's with a hobby, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in you fill in the blank, you be the autonomous woman, you be the autonomous man, you will find peace in doing your own thing. Here's one thing that the world will never tell you. Brace yourself. In all these things that we've looked at, as they offer peace, much of these things come with a a horribly terrific price to pay. The world never tells you it's all a lie. It's all a lie. You remember the movie where Dorothy is on the yellow brick road? And she gets to the end of the story. I'll never forget when I was watching as a kid. Here she is. She's found the great Oz. And what happens? The curtain comes open. I'm like, I've been ripped off. What is this? And you know that's how Dorothy felt too, right? Is that's, that's a portrait of what the world does. They offer this, this Oz of peace and contentment. But at the end of the day, someone flings open the curtain And what is it? It's a goofy old man behind a curtain pulling the strings of your life. And so all these things that the world offers us, it's a lie. None of these these things that we've described will bring peace in the long term. None of these things satisfy. Many years ago, C.S. Lewis addressed the heart of the matter. He said this, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine 
what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. And then Lewis utters these words. He says, we are far too easily pleased. What's he mean? We are so pleased with with the mud pies in a slum that we can't even dream of what it's like to receive an offer of a holiday at the sea. And so if you are searching for peace in this world, know this, that if you pursue the peace that the world offers, your search will be in vain. Your frustration will grow exponentially. That is, it will grow by the day. The more you seek peace from anyone outside the Lord Jesus Christ, the more satisfied, unsatisfied and unfulfilled you will become. And so when the dream vacations are over, when your favorite possession rusts, when your relationship goes sour, you will eventually hit a brick wall like many have done over the course of Western civilization. And you will realize, I've been lied to. There, 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 there is an old guy behind a curtain who's been dictating my life. And the old guy is called the world, the cosmos. You will realize that you've been ripped off. Now, the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ offers through the power of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural peace. It is a peace that Jesus says is not of this world. And this is a peace that I will guarantee you meets every need of the human heart. The peace of the Holy Spirit is eternally satisfying. Peter Kreft says it like this, And every man... There is a loneliness, an inner chamber of peculiar life into which God only can enter. Really what he's doing is he's borrowing from Blaise Pascal, the great French mathematician who said this is we have a a vacuum inside our hearts. We have a vacuum inside our souls. And the only one that can fill the vacuum is, help me, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can fill that vacuum. This is a gift of hope. But I want to have you turn your attention to the second heading. And I want to have you look with me at at what we're calling a great command. A great command. And this command that we're going to look at will really be somewhat of of a review for us. It's nothing new because Jesus has already set forth the all-important command back in John chapter 14, verse 1. If you Turn your, in your Bibles back to that verse. We'll read it together. He says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. In verse 27, we have something of what I'd like to call the, the dual exhaust command. So we've got baseball analogies. We've got car analogies. The dual exhaust command. Look at exhaust pipe number one, if I can say that reverently. In verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to all of us, Let not your hearts be troubled. That comes from the same word that we looked at in John chapter 14, verse 1. It's the Greek word that means to be disturbed or stirred up. You remember the water? Remember how we talked about enjoying a nice day in the pool, and the kids jump in and start stirring the water up, and it agitates you? That's the word. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't let your hearts be troubled. We learned in John 14, verses 1 to 14, that the antidote for a troubled heart is this. 
we embrace the divine perspective of Jesus. So exhaust pipe number one is, let not your hearts be troubled. Exhaust pipe number two is this, let not your hearts be afraid. Let not your hearts be afraid. What does it mean? It means, if I can be so blunt, don't be a coward. It means someone who lacks the courage. It means someone who has an anxious heart. Jesus says, let not your hearts be afraid. This is the great command. These are the dual exhaust commandments. And as we, as we contemplate these commandments... By way of review, I want you to note with me a few observations about our Savior. I want you to note, first of all, the kindness of Jesus when he repeats himself. Moms and dads, you know when you tell your your son or your daughter not to do something, and they're not very good at obeying, what do you do? You kind of raise your voice, you get a little bit bent out of shape, you get perturbed. Notice, Jesus repeats himself here, but there is no frustration. He does not scold them. He does not chastise them. He is patient with their unbelief. Second, notice how Jesus directs the disciples to the Holy Spirit. Instead of being consumed by fear, they are to be comforted now by the peace that will come as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then notice how Jesus is always working to nurture the faith of his disciples. I think there's really some, uh, there's some godly parenting principles. It was never intended to teach parenting principles here in John 14. But there is a principle that emerges. And that is, as moms and dads, do whatever you can to nurture your children's faith. That's what happens here in verse 29. Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And so his passion is that their, their faith would be nurtured, their faith would be uh, informed, and that they would be encouraged. And I want you to see here in verse 27, as Jesus offers these dual exhaust commands, that he indeed is a sympathetic Savior. The Bible tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then the writer of Hebrews says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And find grace and help in time of need. I want to ask you this morning. Can you relate to the anxiety of the disciples? Can you relate to the fear that is is percolating in their heart? I want to ask you more, more pointedly. What kind of fear? What kind of anxiety is gripping your souls these days? Can I be very honest with you? Sometimes my professors in seminary would say, don't, don't do what you're about to do. Don't admit weakness. And actually, I disagree. Because I think for a pastor to be vulnerable and to admit his weaknesses lets you know that, that we are on the same ship together, right? We struggle with the same kinds of things. Do you know when I struggle with anxiety and fear the most? Saturday night. Why do you think that is? 
Saturday night, I, I rarely have a good night's sleep on Saturday nights. Why? I, I'm anticipating preaching. I'm anticipating sharing with the people of God. And you would not believe if I told you the anxiety and the fear I experienced, I'm not sure you'd want to listen to anything that comes from this pulpit. And so what do you do? You fight the fight of faith. I fight the fight of faith. You go to the rack, as it were, and you battle unbelief. You battle fear. You battle anxiety. And so I would ask, here we are. We're all on the same ship together. Where are we headed? We're headed to the celestial city, baby. Are we not? Anyone with me? But on our way to the celestial city, what do we do? We battle fear. We battle fear of the future. We battle fear of disease. We battle the fear of death. We battle the fear of being alone. What happens if I'm the last man standing? What if my children are gone and my wife is gone and my parents are gone and my grandparents are gone? What if my friends are gone and I'm the last one standing? Am I the only one that's had that fear? And you say, what if there's no one there for me? And so you battle the fear of being alone, the battle of loneliness. You battle the fear of personal loss. Or three that we've already dealt with earlier this morning. You battle the fear that someone will see me. They'll see the real me. Or they'll reject me. Or they'll hurt me in some way, shape, or form. In the days that are more and more characterized by trouble and tribulation, Jesus Christ gives his disciples and Jesus Christ gives us. He grants to us. He appoints to us. He ordains for us the peace of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to live lives of boldness, and lives of courage. Therefore, when we embrace this truth point, we are no longer afraid that people will learn about the real me. Isn't that liberating? I don't need to worry anymore about what you think about me. That is great. We no longer are afraid to be rejected. Why? Because Jesus gives us the peace of the Holy Spirit. We are no longer afraid of the threat who, of those who would lay claim to our possessions or threaten to hurt us in any way. Why? Because Jesus gives us the peace of the Holy Spirit. You see, the peace of the Holy Spirit, once again, is a supernatural peace. This is a peace that meets every need of the human heart. This is a peace that is eternally satisfying. And it's not only satisfying now, it will be satisfying unto all eternity. Martin Luther was a man who probably as much or more than any other person in church history had a right, you might say, to fear. He had a reason to fear. Most of you know that after he hammered the 95 Theses on the castle wall in Wittenberg, he was a hunted man. He was a hated man. For the remainder of his days, he was on the run. And so you know that at one point he went to the Diet at Worms, just outside the city of Frankfurt. I actually had a chance to stand at the site where he stood before the most powerful forces in the land and asked him, Are those your books? 
They're burning them all over Europe. Are those your books? And will you recant? There's one movie where Luther makes the famous speech, Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. That's actually not the full truth. Luther said, I need a night to think about it. That doesn't work as well in Hollywood, does it? And so we took the night, and he battled in prayer. And then he did come back, and he said, Yeah, the books are mine, and I don't recant. Here I stand, God help me. And then he was whisked away by his friend Frederick the Wise. It was like a secret kidnapping where they, they whisked him away to the, to the Vortberg Castle. I have, I have visited that castle and I have stood in the room where Luther spent 10 months of his life. And what did he do in those, those days? He translated the Greek New Testament into the common, common tongue of the people, the language of German. It was the first time the German people could read the Bible in their heart language. And then Luther spent the remainder of his days preaching and teaching and evangelizing. But here's the bottom line. He was a hunted man. He was a hated man. And so he had every reason to fear, but he uttered these words. And these are words that have breathed courage into my soul. He said this, This is not the time to cringe. I was in Fairhaven about a year and a half ago and I read those words in one of his books and I just sat there with a big old smile on my face. Here's a guy who is hunted and hated by the Roman Catholic Church. And what does he say? This is no time for cringing. How could the Protestant reformer stand so resolute during a time that was filled in the 16th century with so much trouble and turmoil? How could Luther stand boldly before the Roman Empire, unfazed by the most powerful force on earth? Where did he find the strength to face this opposition with bold resolve? How did he become the bold reformer? One word, shalom. Shalom. Jesus gave Luther the peace of the Holy Spirit. It's the same peace he gives all of us and enabled him to live a life of boldness and courage. Oh, followers of Christ, each of us has been granted the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to live lives like Luther with boldness and and courage. And so we have been granted peace to withstand every storm. We have been granted peace to withstand every trial. We have been granted peace to withstand every physical ailment. We have been granted the peace of the Holy Spirit to endure every false accusation like my friend has had a chance to do. He has the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's what we learn in the gospel. We learn this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He is our shalom. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, help me. Therefore, 
Caden, would you help me? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. How many times have I said peace this morning, Caden? That's a lot, isn't it? I leaned over to Caden before I came up to preach, and I said, Caden, would you write, make a mark every time I say the word peace? There's probably too many to add up, right? You can let me know later. But those of us who have been justified, we have been justified by faith, faith alone, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that Paul the Apostle could pray at the end of his letter to the church in Rome. He said this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I don't know what you're going through today. But my prayer would be that you would remember those words. That the God of shalom, the God of peace would crush Satan under your feet. We have been given the peace of the Holy Spirit which enables us to live lives of boldness and courage. And so may your life on this day, may your life as you, as you chart the course forward to the celestial city, we're all moving forward together, may your life and my life, may our lives collectively as members of this church family be characterized by shalom. And of course, the only way to know shalom is through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't buy shalom. We can't earn shalom. We can't coerce God to give it to us. The only way we receive shalom is to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone. When we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we receive shalom. Shalom that will enable us to live in these perilous times. Let's move forward together to the celestial city with shalom in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were, uh, you were very aware of the trouble that was brewing in the hearts of your disciples. You were very aware of the trouble that resides in our hearts. You are aware of the trouble that resides in my heart. But I thank you that you have granted, you have ordained the peace of the Holy Spirit to to rule and to reign in our hearts, to umpire so that we might live lives that are filled with tranquility, not trouble. So that our lives would be characterized by the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, I I pray for this church family as I know that many are wrestling with a whole host of things, a whole range of issues. I pray that this day that you would make them uh, freshly aware of the peace that is there, the peace that is theirs to enjoy, that comes and is mediated through the person of the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for being a faithful Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for convicting us. I thank you most of all that you uh, reign in our lives, that you bring peace to our Christian lives. May we embrace it. May we enjoy it. May the world see that we are different because of the way that we live. Lives filled with the peace of the Holy Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.